They found that even just having kind of one supportive adult figure helps provide a supportive relationship, can make a huge difference. And then also by building secure attachments, you build resilience in your children to be able to handle these challenging things to go through. Hello, and welcome back to the All Figured Out podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Barr. That clip was from the wonderful Kathleen Sullivan, who is my guest for today's episode. I invited Kathleen onto the show to help us parents figure out how to raise resilient children, regardless of what life inevitably throws at them. And this includes overcoming trauma, creating a secure relationship with your children, and how we can walk alongside our children as they learn to overcome obstacles. Kathleen Sullivan has almost a decade of experience as a nurse working with children, so very, very helpful. And we chat through her career pivot, which was really interesting, and how she became a nurse practitioner and her work now at a clinical practice that supports youth mental health and substance abuse. So she is doing the good work. Kathleen is also on an Adverse Childhood Experiences Provincial Working Group with the Doctors of BC, British Columbia, and they're really doing incredible work on bringing to light the huge impact that childhood adverse experiences can have on a person, both physically and psychologically. And we talk a little bit about this with Kathleen in the episode. So whether or not you or someone you love or your children have experienced trauma, I just wanted to bring Kathleen on to kind of flip the script and actually talk about how we can raise resilient, happy, and secure children. So we will talk a little bit about trauma and adverse childhood experiences. So if this is an episode you want to skip for your own mental health and well-being, please do that. So there is no better person to learn from on this topic, and I hope you get as much out of this episode as I did when interviewing Kathleen. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the All Figured Out Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Barr. As a career coach for parents, a mom, an entrepreneur, and someone who spent 10 plus years in the corporate world, I still don't have it all figured out. And maybe you don't either. In this podcast, I'll share tools and strategies that I use with my clients. And in the many areas where I don't have things figured out, I'll be bringing you some amazing guest experts to help us fill in the gaps. So tune in each week as we explore how to make career and life decisions that truly work for you, your family, and your big goals. Let's make moves. Kathleen Sullivan, thank you so much for joining me on the All Figured Out podcast today. I'm so pumped to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So Kathleen, you and I have known each other for, I'm just thinking about it six maybe seven years we met through our mutual pal Melissa when we both moved out here both from Ontario both now live in BC didn't know each other before um and I have got to bear witness to a really incredible career journey that you've had so for those who want to learn more about your career journey there's been some twists and turns and it's all just been heartwarming give us the story okay perfect so I think when I met you so I had moved out here um, I started out as a nurse and I worked in pediatrics, so at two major children hosp- children's hospitals. And when I met you, it was kind of around the time that I was looking at my, what was next and what education I wanted to pursue. Mm. Um, and I believe actually at that time when you were going through your schooling for coaching, one of your classmates, I worked with a bit just to figure out what direction I wanted to go into. I forgot about that. Yes, yes, which was so helpful. And she's actually the one that, so I was looking at different options that nurses had available and trying to figure out what the best path for 
me would be. Um, and she was kind of, um, she was a pharmacist by trade, I believe, and yes. doing a coaching program. And we kind of went through, we talked a lot about kind of what my goals were and what I was really interested in. And one of the big themes was um, that I really wanted to maintain clinical practice and stay involved clinically and different ways to do that. And so we started looking at the nurse practitioner program and I applied shortly after and was accepted and started that. So actually you're a big part of why I am where I am now, which is really uh, cool. Yeah. So cool. So yes. you did. Yeah. So you went back to school. So you were in your what late twenties Yeah. and made a big career pivot. How was that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I, initially was kind of humming and hawing about it because nurse practitioners are newer in BC and they're new, newer overall. And so it's a role that was still evolving. And, but it was something that I, I don't know, I was very interested in because I, I loved nursing. Nursing, I actually also accidentally fell into. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I wanted to do some type of healthcare, but I wasn't sure what. And I remember I think in high school, my mom was like, well, you have to apply for a third thing at, and I really wanted to go to Queens. Um, she's like, you have to apply for a third one anyways. Why don't you apply for nursing? And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And I didn't apply for it. And then partway through school, I was like, hey, I heard about this cool program and I'd already started a bachelor of science and you do the nursing program in a condensed format um, and thought it was really, I don't know, thought it was interesting because you did clinical placements and spent time with patients um, and got accepted and did that. So I kind of I fell into it a bit unconventionally. Um, and I think it was a really great fit for me and my personality and, yeah. And I worked with children for many years and, um, in really high intensity areas and met some of the most incredible people and had great experiences. And then, yeah, I was just looking at how I wanted to advance my career and what was next. And, um, the nurse practitioner program, because it was evolving too, had a lot of really neat components in it for me. And so I decided to go back to school. And so, um, there's a few different ways you can do it, but the full-time route, which is what most people tend to do is you go back and you do your master's degree along with your nurse practitioner certificate. Um, and it's two years, um, fairly intensive. And so I completed that in British Columbia and started working as an NP. Oh my gosh. Incredible. And if anybody, those who know Kathleen know that you were, it's funny that you did not set out to become a nurse from the day you were born because you are a nurse through and through. I picture you to be on like the news one day and be like the head nurse of Canada. That's just, that's who you are to be. I'm like, you, you are the nurse you Uh, are, but now you're the nurse practitioner. Yeah. 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 And it was one of those things that when I started placements and then I started my first job and my first job was back in Toronto and I, I loved it and it was such a great fit. And I feel very lucky that I came across it. Mm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I don't know, nursing, there's nurses, it's been a tough few years for nurses, I think, mm-hmm. um, with everything, but I still think as a profession, it's incredible and can lead you so many different ways. And there's so many routes and there's kind of a path for everyone. depending mm-hmm. on what are. And I like how you're kind of talking about it from the perspective of you actually really enjoyed the career that you had, but you keep saying like, but I wanted to see where I could go next. And clearly growth and development is a huge value of yours. So you were like, it's not that I hated the work that I was doing. I just wanted to continue to move forward. And you probably hit your plateau a bit in the area you were, or, or maybe you just didn't want to become your boss's boss's boss in that line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that was kind of it where I was looking at, yeah, just different 
and just kind of future planning and what I, what I wanted. And there's, I, I loved my job before I went into NP school mm. and I love the people I worked with and our patients. And, um, but it was, it was hard too, because we saw mm. a lot of really challenging and, and hard things. And, um, there's a lot of development that you can have within a hospital or within the area that I was in. Um, but I really liked the path of going to be a nurse practitioner. Um, a really good friend of mine had started school a few years before. So I got a bit of insight about what the schooling was like and the training program and just different job opportunities that were coming up. And they seemed really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of my other big things too, is I've always been interested in leadership and education and I was hopeful that I would be able to find something where I could fuse the two. Mm. And yeah. And you did. And I did. Yeah. So now I'm, so I'm half-time clinical and the other part of my time, I'm in a leadership role now. So I get to focus on um, developing education programs. So we're making um, a residency program for urgent care NPs. And so I'm working on that right now and I'm supporting our different nurse practitioners and yeah, and I'm I'm just starting in the role, but it's been great so far. Wow, congrats. And I know that the work that you do, you said it on the clinical side is with uh, youth yes. in mental health and substance abuse, which is incredible work, I imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and so I feel like I'm I'm newer in this area in the last few years. And it's to me, it's an area that's very impactful. And a lot of these young people that we see have been through extraordinarily challenging circumstances and they're developing a lot of resources to help out these young people. Mm. And there's a lot more kind of development in the area of how we can support these young people. And it's, I, mean, I everyone I think remembers what it's like being a teenager or a young adult and there's so many changes and it can be a really tough time. And then add on what some of these people have also been through these experiences and it can be an incredibly difficult time. Mm -hmm. And so being able to kind of support them and try and help them through that is, Mm -hmm. it's really meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trauma, trauma, big T, little T trauma, trauma. We hear the word a lot. Uh, As a, a, a lay person, I'm like, yeah, like I think I know what trauma is, but I would say that my immediate reaction, when, if we were to be talking about trauma, and I'm bringing this up because you have special interest in trauma and it's kind of shaping what we're going to discuss today around building resilience for children and what happens if, you know, adverse childhood experiences come into play. Um, so if we were to just talk about trauma, you know, in a general sense, when I hear that word, I think like blunt force trauma to the head or like, you know, God forbid, a car accident or something like, or a really, um, you know, horrific experience as a child, like in an abuse setting or something like that. These are the things that come to mind. What is, is that what trauma is? Are there different, is there a spectrum, which I kind of imagine is maybe what you're going to say. What is it? Yeah. And so it can definitely be a spectrum. So it can be that kind of, um, so it can be a car accident that happens or a type of abuse. Um, it can also be it can show up in ways like neglect or um, being around mental illness. And so it's essentially, it's an experience, not all chat. So it's an experience that is challenging that has lasting impacts. Not all challenging experiences are going to be traumatic to each person, um, Mm -hmm. but every challenging experience has the ability to become something traumatic and it can be small things that can cause trauma over time. So it's not necessarily one kind of landslide event um, or it could be a landslide event. So Trauma is 
kind of anything. So any, how I try to phrase it to my patients is, um, and generally people are pretty comfortable with the idea or definition of trauma, but something that feels traumatic, that it's had a lasting experience on you with residual impacts or a really significant event in your life. Mm, okay. That's, I like that way. That seems like a, a really easy palatable way to understand. Yeah. That. Yeah. And even with, I mean, with everyone's human experiences. So I, I don't know exactly what all my patients have gone through. And there are many experiences that I don't know and don't understand that might have happened to them that could have lasting impacts and be traumatic. Mm -hmm. So keeping Mm -hmm. it kind of open, I think is important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And then, so uh, really, but the reason why we decided to frame up this conversation today and to, to tee this up is because you have recently joined a working group with the doctors of BC specifically uh, related to adverse childhood experiences, which kind of play in conjunction with trauma as you were just defining it. So ACEs is the acronym. Mm. I think that that's a cool, that's a powerful, that's a really powerful uh, acronym there. Adverse childhood experiences. Um, that means trauma or, or what does that mean? Yeah. So yeah. So the, the working group that I'm in, so it's formed by doctors at BC and they're, they're looking at childhood trauma and how that impacts mm-hmm. health. And we'll, we'll get into it a bit more about the impacts that that can have. And then what some of the you know, protective and supportive factors are against trauma and how we can prevent. Um, so for the working group, their, their ultimate goals are to kind of spread the word to make sure that people are well-informed about this and then make sure that people also know the different resources that are available and that mm. are out there. Mm. Um, and so with that, so we, they were speaking um, with med students, with NP students um, at various conferences. And yeah, so they're, they're doing quite a bit of work and trying to yeah, just get the word out there a little bit more and educate people more about what, what the impact of adverse childhood experiences are. So where adverse childhood experiences originated from was a study that was done by um, Dr. Vincent Folletti. It was in 1998. And so it was a study that was initially done with um, Kaiser Permanente staff. So it's in California. And they looked at about 17,000 people. And this, the study originated, they were working with patients on obesity initially. And as they were going through the study, they realized that a lot of their patients had also experienced significant trauma. And they thought it was a way higher percentage than what they would have expected for the general population. And the initial study was also done on middle to upper class Caucasian people. So that they were pretty surprised by the amount of people that were reporting trauma. So they decided to study it. And so they looked at 17,000 people and they found that, and they looked at traumatic experiences in life. They found that over 60% of people had experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. So over half had experienced this. Um, about 25%, so a quarter had experienced two or more, and then 12.5% had at least four adverse childhood experiences. So they initially collected all the information on what what they thought the most common adverse childhood experiences were, and they came up with 10 that were included in the initial study. Now, it's been broadened since, but the initial 10 were um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional neglect, physical neglect, um, witnessing domestic violence in the household, um, having a family member or someone in the home with substance abuse, um, having someone in the home with mental illness, um, having someone in the home as part of the criminal 
system or witnessing criminal activity. And then the other one, which is a very common one as well, is divorce. And so those were the initial 10 that they looked at. However, since they've broadened this, so the, I mean, that the list is inclusive now of poverty, of bullying, um, a traumatic loss of a loved one, um, serious accidents, a life-threatening childhood illness or injury, um, natural disasters, um, being in refugee camp, terrorism, war. Um, and it's not a, that list isn't all encompassing of everything that can be traumatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, Cause you said previously that you could have something that would be deemed by society potentially as something, just a small thing that happened to you, but you internalize it as traumatic. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, that can be smaller events that happen um, in a household of, yeah, just not having emotional needs being met over and over. Um, yeah. And so what they found is they looked at all these adverse childhood experiences and they realized there was a dose dependent relationship. So the amount of trauma that you endure affects your likelihood of getting different health conditions over a lifetime. And when we look at all the different health conditions that they noticed a correlation to, it's a lot of the common ones that we see later on in life. So, um, people that had experienced four or more adverse childhood experience were almost two times as likely to get diagnosed with diabetes, two times as likely to have cancer, two times as likely to have heart disease, um, over two times more likely to have a stroke, um, almost four times as likely to have COPD, which is um, a respiratory disease that we generally see later in life. It's usually associated with smoking, but can be from um, mine exposure, um, working over large stoves. Um, they found a large correlation in those that had experienced trauma and uh, mental health issues later on. So depression and anxiety had a fourfold increase. Um, the chance of becoming um, dependent on or having issues with alcohol use um, was seven times more likely um, and significant increases in learning and behavioral difficulties, especially if the trauma occurs before the age of five. So, whoa, yeah, so it's a lot of significant health impacts. And so the interesting thing too, so as this was coming up, so I first, I think I came across this when I was in school and I did my capstone project on it in school. So, um, I spent a lot of time reading about it and researching it. And then in the areas that I practice in now, um, a lot of, a lot of my patients have significant trauma from their past. And so initially when the study came out, and people were recognizing ACEs, there was a thought that we should be screening every patient for ACEs and knowing what their ACE score was. So having people do a questionnaire that establishes what the score was. But now the thought is that knowing someone's score isn't always as helpful, but knowing kind of the resources and the preventative measures and those instead and directing patients in that way can be more helpful. And also a bit of an understanding too. So if we know that someone's had a really strong history of trauma, then, and you're their primary care provider, being more aware that they're more likely to be, have diabetes or have heart disease. And so um, being really good about different screening measures and Mm. preventative measures for that can be important as well. So, and we're not just talking about mental health here. Like this, um, my mind is blown. And you and I have talked about this before, but this is really just like, this is actually blowing my mind. And so they actually found, they found that um, as you go through these traumatic experiences. So our stress responses are wired that we see, and we live in BC. So we see a bear 
um, <laughs> our, you know, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, we're more alert. Um, the blood is redirected from our stomach. So we're not focusing on, you know, the, the less important bodily functions aren't the focus of our body and we're alert or, you know, we're ready to take action. We're ready to run away or hide or whatever it is we need. Fight or flight. Exactly. So the fight or flight response, but then if you look at someone that's experiencing trauma, then that flight or fight response is happening over and over. So instead of, you know, it being an appropriate increase in all those important for epinephrine, your norepinephrine, an increase in all of those when you're in, in it, well, not always abnormal for BC people, but you know, you see it there and that happens in that instance to help you. But then if you're in an experience where you know, that bear or that scary thing is in your home, mm. your body is constantly be going to be going through that fight or flight response and you're going to have that stress response. So they found that they can actually having traumatic experiences um, has physiological effects. So it can shrink your hippocampus, which can impair your memory and emotional regulation. Um, your amygdala, which is also part of your brain, also has dysfunction. So you are more likely to have impulsive behavior. It affects your fear response center. So it can heighten your fear response. Um, your synaptic connection. So in between your neurons, um, you have fewer of those. So your brain isn't communicating as it should be. Um, there's epigenetic changes. So there's changes that can actually be passed down in between generations. So um, if someone's maternal grandma experienced trauma, some of those changes and the likelihood for these health risks can also get passed on to an offspring that wasn't born at that time. Um, there's dysregulation of your metabolic system. Um, you might have issues with your, your gut and your GI system as well. And so yeah, and they also, they looked at, and for children, they looked at people that had um, asthma and they were less responsive to conventional treatments. Um, with trauma, they're more likely to experience treatment refractory depression. But there's one study that they looked at a, so they did a randomized control trial of orphans living in Romania and they looked at their EEG, which is, um, so an EEG is essentially a lot of stickers that get placed on the brain and it looks at the brain waves and they use it a lot in seizure disorders. So they found that on um, the children in this orphanage that had been exposed to adversity had immature EEG patterns. So they weren't as developed as they should be for their age. Um, and they also found that the longer they stayed in institutionalized care, um, part of the brain, so their white matter matured slower. Um, and they, they found they could actually predict someone's family income. Um, to their needs ratio um, by based on examining the white and gray matter and what the difference was based off of the age for the children. And then they did a study where they assigned these children in the orphanage to high quality care. So high quality foster parents um, that provided kind of loving supportive homes. Um, and then they compared it to those that had stayed in the orphanage and that didn't have that. And they found that those that had high quality care before the age of two, um, their EEGs, which is the brain patterns that they looked at, um, those actually looked completely normal compared to their peers that had not subjected any trauma early on in life. And so experiencing trauma has huge impacts on health. I think from the role of a healthcare provider, knowing exactly, I mean, if, if someone is willing or wants to speak about that and what's been traumatic, we can listen to that. But I think what's more important is trying to prevent trauma 
And then mm -hmm. also supportive resources for those that have experienced trauma and how we can kind of prevent the cycle of mm -hmm. trauma continuing to go. And a lot of that comes down to social resources that are available. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's so, thank you for explaining all of that. Sometimes mental health can be a hard thing to maybe wrap your head around, especially for those who have not experienced anything with health, mental health, whether with themselves or others. But sometimes when it's like, this could really have a negative impact on your mental health. I just find sometimes that's not compelling enough for some people, but you are stating some really, really important and kind of scary physiological like outcomes of this. Now, if we like just slam our hand down and say, okay, sometimes Unfortunately, this has happened and somebody might be listening who feels like they have experienced an adverse childhood experience, trauma, or God forbid their children have already in their life. Um, can you reassure us? Can you reassure us that we can break the cycle that there is treatment for trauma? Like what can be done? And then I want to get into protective factors, but let's just like, yeah, let's just like squash the fears that I know are popping up in people's minds right now as we talk about this because it's heavy and we talked about this before we're like this is going to be a heavy topic but how can we look forward and find the light in this situation yeah absolutely and so and it's with I mean especially with I mean, traumatic experiences and challenging experiences are almost inevitable even for someone that's in a home that has has all of the good social thing. If parents get divorced, that can be a traumatic thing. Or if you know there's a natural disaster, there's a fire, there's something like something could happen or bullying happens, right? There's a lot of things that are out of control. So as human beings, most of us will go through some challenging experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. of us go through a lot of challenging experiences and some people have um, kind of an unfair hand that's dealt to them. Um, but they found that not every parent or biological parent is going to be the one that's going to be supportive or that's going to be able to meet the needs of the child at the time. But they found that even just having kind of one supportive adult figure helps provide a supportive relationship can make a huge difference. And then also by building secure attachments, you build resilience in your children to be able to handle these challenging things to go through. Now, if trauma has occurred, um, so there's different types of therapy, psychotherapy. So talk therapy or conventional therapy can be really helpful for some, but it's not helpful for everyone. And for trauma, it's, um, can be helpful, but not always. And um, there's a new type of therapy called, um, well, not new, it's, I think it's becoming more popular now. It's called EMDR. EMDR. So it's mm. an eye movement desensitization reprocessing and how it works is they, and there's certain clinicians that are able to conduct this, but it's through eye movements and it helps your brain kind of reprocess what's happened to kind of move on from the trauma and have it be less triggering. So there's different types of therapy that are available. Um, and then, yeah, the big thing is having, making sure that children have a secure adult that they can rely on and that they can depend on. And so with that, if you, um, so say a child has experienced something potentially traumatic and say they're a five-year-old or something like that. And you talked a lot about some of the scary things that can kind of happen later in life, like the likelihood of X, Y, and Z. Say a traumatic, like maybe there's been a neglectful parent or neglectful set of parents in this child's life, but then somebody does come into their life and provides that support and the nurturing home or care, or just is a really great figure. Can you start to reduce some of those risk factors? Yeah, absolutely. And so, oh, yeah. Good. And so kind of providing that, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So kind of providing that protective, yeah, that protective resource can be really helpful for children. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's not a loss. And then I also have to ask for somebody who's listening, who's like, well, I'm, you know, 35 years old at this point, And I did have, you know, some crap happen to me when I was younger. Um, and I know that sometimes people can feel a bit of fear around like, is history going to repeat itself? Does this mean I'm broken? Um, can, can they also, you know, break that pattern in that cycle and be reassured that they're not broken? Absolutely. And nobody is broken. Um, nobody is broken. And there is, yeah, there's a lot about now about breaking the cycle because a lot of the time, and if if you think about it, it makes sense too. So if someone's grown up in a household that had a lot of challenges or there was abuse or there is alcohol use, there's something like that. And they saw a lot of challenging things, then they grow up, they feel, you know, they feel unsupported. And then maybe they turn to substances or alcohol as well to help cope with all the challenging things. And then that continues on, but there are ways to what we call kind of break the cycle where there's helpful things. So getting into, so, and it depends because every person is individual. So what every person needs is going to be unique. So whether that's therapy and getting into EMDR, um, EMDR, um, whether it's building connection within your community and, or whether it's finding a different way to parent than how you were parented. Mm. and providing for your children a childhood that you didn't have the chance to have. And there's a lot now too on, there's a lot of more great resources out there. So there's a few books. There's one by Ken Hoffman and it's on raising a secure child. So there's the different attachment theories. Mm. And so depending on how you're raised can affect the attachment style that you have. And this is your attachment to other people. And And it can impact your attachment to other relationships further down. So depending on what your relationship was like as a child and growing up, that can affect your relationship with your your partner, your friends, the people later in your life. And so the four attachment styles, so there's secure attachment, anxious attachment, dismissive, avoidant, and fearful avoidant. Um, And I don't know, did you take psychology? Mm -hmm. This is ringing a bell. And so they talked about this and they they looked at a study of where they had toddlers and the parents stepped out of the room and then they looked at how some of the toddlers behaved and depending on the attachment styles and what their relationship was like, the toddlers would behave in different ways. Um, and so the best attachment style is a secure one. And there's um, a quote from the Kent Hoffman book, a secure attachment is confidence and trust in the goodness of me, you and us. So they feel good and confident and like they can rely on that other person. And then that in turn leads them to feel like they can rely on themselves and trust themselves and get through things. So through a lot of that, so some of the tips from this book are, so showing interest in your child and your child or your children and what they're doing can be really supportive, um, validating their feelings as well. Um, and then building confidence that they can go through and do hard things and offering freedom to explore and engaging in creativity, making sure that there's no conditions on the love that I don't just love you because you're smart and you're good at soccer, but because of who you are and yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So good to get back to some of those just basics. Like, as you know, there's so much information out there and it gets complicated and confusing. And it's kind of like when you, I listen to tons of podcasts, obviously, and you know, it's always like get good. Like when you're talking about just health, it's like get good sleep, drink water. It's, it all seems so basic, but, but it's helpful to be reminded. Like it's helpful to be reminded that validate your kids feelings that just, yeah, you're in the throes of it. You're not sleeping. You're having a bad day yourself. And you're like, oh, how do like, what do I come back to? What's my life raft for being a good parent? The foundational pieces. It's just helpful to to hear those again. 
also with it, with developing a secure attachment, you don't have to be perfect mm. and nobody's perfect. And you're not going to be on a hundred percent of the time. Um, but if you, I don't know, are, are short with your child, which everyone is going to be at some point. And if you are, or, you know, if you snap at them, just the ability to apologize and apologizing quickly so that they know. Mm-hmm. And then they, and that also gives your child a sense that it's okay to not be perfect and how to handle that because that's a huge part of being a human mm-hmm. and getting through life. And how can, yeah. And it's <laughs> like, how can we constantly nag our kids about manners when they don't see that modeled? I find that so funny. Like there's a lot of, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Like the, I'm not going to admit faults. Like if you stepped, like I stepped on my daughter's toe the other day and she was like, Oh mommy. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Or, you know, we have to leave the park. I'm not apologizing for leaving the park, but I'm validating that she's upset that we have to leave the park every single day. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, yeah, we had so much fun at the park. It's hard to leave. And you know, some days I like get the wording wrong or I say, sorry, when I don't mean, sorry, you know, they're like always playing around with it. But as long as I think the intention, it seems to be important as well. Um, resilience. We hear a lot about that word. And I know that, um, that's a key piece in a lot of that, like a lot of this in building, building up children to, you know, live their best lives. And it's, you know, we want to, it's kind of buzzy almost maybe a bit of a buzzword. Like we want our children to grow up with resilience. What does, how does that play into this? Um, yeah. Is it different than what we're talking about? How do we create and build up resilient children? Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I feel it like it is, um, it is a bit of a buzzword of resilience, but what does it actually mean? And I think, I mean, yeah, I would say like that they have the confidence that they can get through hard things mm. right? and they have the tools that are there and they don't necessarily have to have all the answers, but that they can get through challenging times. Um, and I kids- like that they don't necessarily have to, it's not like we have to give our kids all the answers, I don't know. but they feel resourceful enough to seek out whether it's, you know, that old story about like, Hey, I'll be the fun aunt who like, you can call if there's somebody who's about to like drive drunk. Mm. Like, it's like, what are the resources? Like, okay, I'm going to use my brain and be like, this is a terrible idea. This is a bad situation I've ended myself up in. However, I have the tools. I don't know if that's a good example, but like giving them tools, not answers. Absolutely. And then building up, building up that they are able to start to navigate the world because as you're, I mean, when your children are young, they rely on you for so much. And then, um, they're so needy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, um, dog trainer that we have. She, For your massive, 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 adorable dog. So she's so funny. So she, and I will also say this disclaimer too, because we, I'm not a parent yet. We, we hope to be someday. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a parent. So a lot of this is just from, this is just from my like my readings and my experience in work that's coming from your 10 years doing yeah you you can you can tell us the things even though you're not a parent you can tell us all the things <laughs> our um the trainer that we have and she's the best oh my gosh she's great and so she when we first got our puppy because we knew he was going to be massive we were like oh we we wanted to be well trained so we brought her in to do a one-on-one in our home and she was so funny because she sat us down and she goes okay do you want to have kids and both my partner and I were like, yeah, we do want to have kids like the next few years, hopefully. And she's like, all right, you get this right. Raising a dog. She's like, you'll be excellent parents. 
it's all in Fogla. We're like, okay, all right, well, we'll see. Anyways, but so she was, she was talking on a, one of her sessions. So we did all the like puppy classes and stuff. And she was talking, she's like, your goal as a parent with human children is you want them to leave home eventually. You want to build them up and they grow and they're confident and they take on the world by themselves. You want them to want to leave home. Mm. That's your goal. And then she turned around. She's like, you want your dog to come home. You don't want them to run away. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big difference between this, but a lot of, yeah. And a lot of, yeah, the resilience is just building them into confident, secure humans that are able to tackle the challenges of the world and Mm. There will inevitably be some. There's a, there's another book. I don't know if you've read it, but it's by Dan Siegel. He's a child psychiatrist. I'm gonna butcher this. I don't know where he's from. He's somewhere in the states. Okay, and I'm gonna link. I'll link all these resources because Kathleen okay. is gonna continue to share, and I'm gonna forget everything. So we'll link all the resources so you can people can Great. go and Perfect. find them after. Yeah. Um, and one of so one of my colleagues that's also in the working group um, with doctors of BC. So she was speaking about this on a podcast that she had done. And I thought it was so great. So it's on um, the power of showing up and it's about parenting. And there's four S's that they say of kind of your goals for parenting. So um, the first one is safe. So you want to keep them safe. You want to make them feel safe. And then your second one is seen. So making sure that there's understanding that you're responding to them. Um, And then you want to soothe them. So you're present. So, and then they said when challenging things happen as a parent, um, you want to be present you want to have engagement with them and still show them affection, calm, and have empathy. And then your last one is you want them to be secure as they grow up. So safe, seen, soothed, and secure. How do we make our kids feel secure in situations where like we won't always be there? Yeah, And so I think a lot of that too from um, it's giving kids the chance to explore, mm. be creative, and giving them that starting to give them that freedom and and letting them do things on their own because that also builds their confidence that they can do these things and start to tackle harder and harder things and then like a bit of a a longer leash if we use the dog analogy yeah yeah yeah. I like that like I was we were scootering we were scootering I was not on the scooter Addie was scootering (laughs) she's getting really good I mean there's parents are kind of annoying when they're like oh my god my daughter's a genius Addie's a genius she is rocking this scooter like it's nobody's business it's like it happened overnight anyways man she bailed so many times on her little knees on the asphalt and I was one of them I actually caught her midair and I was like oh that was good because I think she was gonna land on her head but I was like I might actually get her knee pads because like her knees are so scraped from the summer but I was thinking about that and I was thinking about our conversation coming up and I was like oh I wonder if this is like kind of part of all this where it's it's giving her these opportunities to fall and get up and we talk about it and she's like oh that hurt and then she gets back on the scooter and it's like it's okay yeah yeah and it's hard as the parent like that's a physical situation but like it's so hard as the parent to like see your kids go through stuff but I just I I know intuitively and also through work I've done and research and whatever that it's important to let them have those the little scrapes on their knees and that not take, not keep them home from school because you're worried about bullying, not preventing them from being in social situations out of fear of something happening, but giving them the tools if, and when things do happen to be like, this is how we can get through them together. And maybe is it setting up for them to have the tools to then be able to get through stuff on their own? Yeah. And I think that's such a beautiful thing too, of um, getting through it together. And I think that mm. exemplifies what they're talking about with secure parenting mm. um, is that 
teaching them from an early age that you're there with them through this and these challenging things. And there's actually one of the MPs that I did school with. So she was a parent and she had two young kids and one of her, her youngest had issues with anxiety. And so we get really, really worried about things. And I remember she was telling us, she would always sit them down and be like, okay, is this something we can, like, can we get through this together? What's the worst case scenario? And can we get through this together? And he'd reflect and be like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, we can. But I just thought it was so beautiful because it was, it was a parent that was like, yep, this is going to be hard. I'm here Mm. with you and I'll get you through it. And then, yeah. You know what I like about that is asking them what they, it's kind of like she was asking him what he needed as well. So it's like, no matter what age, I guess the kid is at when you're kind of doing a bit of a debrief, instead of being like, okay, I'm going to distract you. Let's have a popsicle or, okay, here's what we should do next. Like you scraped your knee. Let's go get a bandaid, blah, blah, blah. What if I like, maybe Addie didn't want a bandaid. We didn't do that. But the reflection, if she was super upset could have been, Hey, what do you want to do now? Like, what should we do to solve this? Or like, how are you feeling? And she'd be like, my knee hurts. It's like, okay, like, how can I support you in making it feel better? And maybe like starting to help her come up with solutions. Like she's in that space. She's only two and a half, but like, she's really is getting there where she could be like, I want to keep scootering versus me pushing a solution on her. It's like your friend, it's like asking him like, okay, what do we want to do to get through this together? And he could be like, nothing. I'm actually fine. Or like, I want to talk about it or I want to be alone. Maybe that's part of it. And like really honoring where they're at. Yeah. And I think that's a big part too of, um, of them being seen Mm. is you're kind of understanding the inner workings because I think she's, she's two and a half, but she's got this brain that's growing like crazy and she's making all these new connections and she's developing and she's learning all these new skills and so quickly. And so, um, really getting curious about what's going on inside her beautiful brain. Yes. Yes. Can I ask you, can I ask you advice? I'm putting you totally on the spot here. When things happen, what do you say? If someone's sharing an experience with you and they're like, they share like a really traumatic experience from their childhood. Yeah. What's it, what's the first thing that you typically say as an acknowledgement, but not lessening them? Yeah. Belittling them. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's a big thing is that what I I try to do is acknowledgement about how, how challenging that must've been. And just, yeah, like how challenging it must've been to share that. And I just, like that. Yeah, yeah. And just try to have kind of a, a, a quiet moment of a, yeah, appreciation because difficult things like that are not always easy to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of, it's a lot of vulnerability, right? To bring mm-hmm. that up. And so mm-hmm. I think appreciation of that and also appreciation too, because as a, you know, as a healthcare provider, sometimes I'm meeting people for the first time or, you know, I've only met them a few times. So for them to share something big like that, it, yeah, it's, it must've been really difficult for them because mm-hmm. I'm a new person. That is hard. And now I'm thinking maybe in the, in a, a reverse situation with parents, it could also be hard because that's the person that you care most about. Like your parents say it could be the people that you care most about. You care about their opinion. You might be sharing something that they really don't want to hear. Like, okay, I really screwed up here. And I'm about to tell you acknowledgement. Like that's interesting. I'm acknowledging how hard that must have been for you to share that. Um, so that's cool. I like that. The acknowledgement piece is huge. And, yeah. And I think you also, and as a parent or as a healthcare provider, you want to make sure that people feel safe to come to you again mm-hmm. with if something really difficult has happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Oh my goodness. Um, we could talk forever. And I know we're, we're like, we could go for three hours for sure. Um, Kathleen. 
We, yeah, we're going to have to do a part two at some point. I've got a million more questions, but this is so incredibly helpful. And even just ending on that, like, how do you even acknowledge, like, how, like, what are some of the things, like the four S's? We'll drop all of this stuff in the show notes in the, um, in the blog post that I create associated with this. This is so incredibly helpful. I have to ask, what's something that you're trying to figure out? I ask everybody on the, on the podcast. I should have expected this coming because I listened to your podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, oh my gosh, I yeah. think, and I think it could be anything. I think this is going to be my forever thing um, is trying to, and if my partner, if my partner listens to, listens to this, he's going to laugh. Um, is my, I'm always trying to figure out my balance of having a busy job and doing things in that job that bring me a lot of joy and meaning, and then balancing that with the other things that I get a lot of joy and meaning from. And, you know, because sometimes I can sway too much where I'm end up working really long hours and I'm working too much and then I'm not cooking at home or spending quality time at home and vice versa if I'm not and I feel like you know doing too many social things but trying to find the balance of all the things that make me feel good and make me happy and make me function at my best and I feel like and I can't even imagine what it must be like for you as a parent to two young children but finding that balance about where you allocate your time and I feel like we get older and time is going faster and everyone's getting busier but yeah yeah, balancing that Mm -hmm. it's so Mm -hmm. challenging Mm -hmm. it's challenging you know what I will say maybe to ease your mind from my personal experience the there's beauty in the constraint like there's literally a book called a beautiful constraint and I always reference it even though I've never actually read it but Scotty wrote read it and he always references it so I feel like I've read it which is like most books that he reads. I feel like I've also read it with him. Um, And and there is beauty in the the constraints that are created in parenting where you're like, I only have X, Y, and Z amount of time, which is interesting because then it does. Like I remember hearing people say it makes you feel more productive or like you've just got a bit more focus because you've got pockets of time. So it's interesting. It'll be interesting to continue to reflect and we'll have you back on. when when the time comes that yeah. you start making babies because you'll be great and it's cool that you've already acknowledged that like you are aware that it's something that you're working on which is yeah. half the battle right yes well thank you so much. first of all thank you for the work that you do second of all thank you for coming and speaking to me and us this audience and from the lens of parenting and sharing your career story too how fascinating um, I've learned, I've honestly learned a lot and I know there's, um, resources that you mentioned a couple books and there's a couple others that you wanted to share as well. So I will put those in the show notes, but I so appreciate your time. I appreciate you. And I have a feeling you will be a friend of the podcast and I'll be inviting you back if you will, if you will join me. I would be honored. And yeah, thank you so much for having me and taking the time to listen to me. And it's been, yeah, it's been such a treat to, to spend the last you know hour with you. Oh, the best. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you for listening. You can access all resources mentioned in this episode via my website, andreabar.com slash podcast. And let's chat on Instagram. I'm at andreabarcoaching and I reply to every DM I get. If you loved this episode, don't forget to quickly hit that button on your podcast app to give me a five-star rating and drop in a review. It would truly mean the world. And if you're like me and love to share things that you love, send this episode to a friend who you think would appreciate this topic. Thanks again for listening and I'll chat with you next week.